0: Two, count them two Ice Storm high efficiency cores, but up to eight Firestorm high performance cores, up to 32 G13 graphics cores, with up to 64 gigabytes of unified memory and ProRes and decode and maybe, just maybe, our first glimpse at what's coming next with the iMac Pro and the full-on Mac Pro. I'm Rene Ritchie. Hit subscribe so you don't miss the next video. And this is the M1 Pro and M1 Max deep dive. Apple's been making extra, as in extra, but also as in just totally extra versions of their custom chipsets almost since forever now. Their first SOC or system on a chip was the A4 in the original iPad and iPhone 4, followed by A5 in the iPad 2 and iPhone 4S. Now, SOC just means most everything is integrated right onto the same die. So instead of having like a silicon platter with a CPU over here, GPU over there, memory on the left, controllers on the right, you have a full on silicon sandwich with all the cores, all the features just stacked all together. And there are a ton of advantages to this approach which I'll get to in a minute, but one of them is scalability, not just generation over generation as new architectures and new process shrinks are introduced, but even within the exact same generation as extra cores or extra features get added. Enter A5X, where the OG A5 had dual ARM Cortex A9 CPU cores, dual imagination power VR, SGX453MP2 GPU cores and 512 gigabytes of package on package RAM, the A5X kept the same CPU, but escalated the GPU to a quad core power VR SGX543MP4, doubled the size of the memory interface and the amount of RAM all the way up to one gigabyte, but shifted it off package, which I don't know, but maybe could be something again in the future. And Apple needed those extra GPU cores and memory to power their first ever tablet-sized retina display for the iPad 3, AKA the new iPad. Even though turned out powered only barely and Apple ended up having to get the iPad 4 and A6X out just six months later. And let me know if you wanna hear more about that whole story in the comments. Now, A6X was similar to A5X, keeping the same dual CPU cores, though this time they weren't ARM Cortex designs anymore but Apple's first custom Swift CPU cores. And it took the A6's triple core PowerVR SGX 543 MP3 GPU to a quad core PowerVR SGX 554 MP4 GPU and the memory to quad channel. So A4, but no A4X, then A5X and A6X, but no A7X, because Apple stuck with their first ever 64-bit chipset the A7 in its origin form, not its altered form for the first ever iPad Air. The iPad Air 2 though, yeah, that got an altered form A8X. Instead of dual Typhoon CPU cores, it had three triple cores. And instead of a quad cluster customized Power VR series 6 XT, it had an Octo cluster. And again, with an external RAM module, this time two gigabytes worth. Now, there was also an A9X and an A10X, the latter of which was part of the first generation to use Apple's fused version of big dot little or what they call performance and efficiency cores, triple Zephyr E cores, and triple hurricane P cores to be exact, along with 12 customized PowerVR GT 7600 GPU cores. And then again, no A11X, because by the time the iPad Pro came around, Apple had fallen into less than an every 12 month and more of an every 18 month cadence for those upgrades. but. Yes to an A12X, which was the big one because it most directly set the stage for just everything that would come with the M1. A12 was Apple's second generation bionic architecture, which unlike the paired fusion architecture before it could use any or all cores separately or together, four Tempest E cores and two Vortex P cores to be exact, along with four custom G11 graphics cores and eight neural engine cores or A and E also custom encode decode blocks for H.264 and HEVC, which I'll get to in a minute because they also become a much bigger deal with the M1 Pro and the M1 Max. Now, A12X kept the same number of E cores, but doubled the P cores to four and almost doubled the GPU cores, almost. Because at the time, Apple announced seven GPU cores on the A12X for the 2018 iPad Pro, but it turned out there were actually eight cores Apple was only making use of seven of them. They didn't start using all eight until the A12Z, the second iteration of that SOC for the 2020 iPad Pro. And A12X also had four gigabytes of integrated RAM for most models, but six gigabytes for the highest tier model, which required it to support one terabyte of storage. A12Z though had six gigabytes for all the storages. And all of this from the binning to the different memory tiers were all things that we'd see really play out for the M1 but especially for the M1 Pro and the M1 Max. And totally no surprise there because the A12Z also just so happened to be the chipset that they used for the Apple Silicon Mac dev kit, the iPad guts in the Mac mini enclosure that they intended to help get apps ported over and ready in time for the M1. And yet there was no A13X, even though Apple introduced the A13 for the iPhone 11, all the way back in September of 2019. And they were still perfectly happy to ship the A12Z for the iPad Pro and the dev kit in the spring and summer of 2020. Same way there was no A14X because that essentially became M1. And even though Apple introduced the A15 for the iPhone 13 back in September of this year, Apple was likewise still just perfectly happy to ship the M1 Pro and M1 Max for the new MacBook Pros just one month later, even though they're still based on the A14, because as I'll explain in a minute, those are all just implementation details. And it turns out like, wow, are they still extra? Triple X is an extra. Now, of course, M1 is more than just A14X with new branding. It does have specific Silicon IP for the Mac, but that didn't stop Apple from following up on the A12Z iPad Pro with the M1 iPad Pro because the architecture was and is so broadly similar between those generations. Instead of A12 Tempest and Vortex cores, M1 has a 14 generation Ice Storm and Fire Storm cores and fabbed or fabricated on Taiwan Semiconductor's five nanometer process, giving it even greater performance efficiency as well. From iPad Pro to iMac non-pro, ultra long lasting portables to ultra low thermal desktops. So yeah, talk about your scalable architecture. But with the M1 Pro and M1 Max, Apple wasn't as concerned with ultra low power. What they needed to deliver was ultra high pro level performance. So instead of four E cores, they dropped those down to just two. Bigger batteries and adaptive refresh rate displays would offset any real difference in terms of battery life anyway. And then they bumped the P cores up from four to six or eight for the M1 Pro and a solid eight for the M1 Max. The six P core version of the M1 Pro being a bin down version, same as what Apple did with the A12X and even the M1 on the GPU side, because when monolithic chips like Apple's SOCs come off the fab, especially off of leading edge process nodes like TSMC's five nanometer, there can and will be defects and some of those cores just won't be functional. So if you just throw away every chip without a full set of perfectly functional cores, you end up with a hell of a lot of waste, which means low yield, low volume, and a high price per remaining unit. But if you keep the ones with only seven out of eight GPU cores or six out of the eight P cores, they throw away way fewer chips, which means a better yield, which keeps volume up and prices per unit down. Then Apple passes on some of those savings to people who are absolutely fine buying less cores if it means less money. So yes, indeed, both M1 and the bin down version of M1 Pro have eight cores total for the CPU. And while each individual E-core and P-core are the same, meaning any single core task will still perform the same on M1 or M1 Pro or M1 Max, like driving any one individual Toyota or Ferrari will be the same, where M1's eight cores are the sum of four E-cores and four P-cores, the bin down M1 Pro's eight cores are the sum of two E-cores and six P cores. In other words, instead of four Toyotas and four Ferraris, you're getting two Toyotas and six Ferraris, which is empirically more Ferraris. And then the regular M1 Pro and the M1 Max both have 10 cores total for the CPU. The sum of two E cores and eight P cores or two Toyotas and eight Ferraris, which is even more Ferraris. Why six or eight P cores for the M1 Pro instead of seven or eight like the GPU cores for the regular M1? Well, it might just come down to the realities of the fab, or it could have to do with the eight P cores actually being two clusters of four P cores each. Also, each cluster has their own 12 megabytes of L2 cache and each cluster can dynamically clock their CPUs independently, meaning a single active core on each can go all the way up to 3.2 gigahertz. Two cores can cut down to 3.1 gigahertz and three or four cores all the way down to three gigahertz sacrificing a little bit of speed off the top for just a lot of parallelism all at once. And the two E cores are clocked at two gigahertz, but get the same four megabytes of L2 cache that the M1 has for its four E cores. On top of all that, where M1 has 16 megabytes of system level cache, M1 Pro has 24 megabytes, and the M1 Max, 48 megabytes of SLC. So all of those extra cores, including all of those extra extra performance cores, they just keep getting fed. like constantly fed. And that's not even counting the improved memory system, which I'll get to in a minute. That's also only the first way that Apple's M1 Pro and M1 Max feel so fast. Just the overall speed of all those cores, everything gets done faster, but because they're still Apple cores and not really gas guzzling Ferraris, and those cores have to fit into the tiny, tiny thermal envelopes of iPhones and the relatively small thermal envelopes of iPads, even the performance cores are still wildly efficient, which is just the starkest, the harshest of contrast to the previous Intel chipsets, which chugged power rather than sipped it and hit thermal max and fan noise max pretty much immediately at startup, only to ramp up and down incessantly, constantly noisily, ever thereafter. So at just 30 watts fully fired inside the relatively roomy chassis of the MacBook Pro, the M1 pro and M1 Max, they can sustain pretty much indefinitely, all with no or almost no involvement from the fans and certainly nowhere nearly ever the fan noise. And if you're at all ever worried about battery life, you can turn on the new low power mode in Mac OS to just maximize the efficiency. Or conversely on the 16 inch MacBook Pro and only the 16 inch because of the even bigger thermal envelope, you can turn on high power mode, which just lets the fans and the chips loose. So you maximize the performance. It's an incredibly cool idea made possible because the M1 architecture is just so cool. Carrying on that theme where M1 had those seven or eight slightly tweaked A14 generation G13 GPU cores, M1 Pro has 14 or 16 of those cores and the M1 Max 24 or 32. And that's just such a ridiculously massive escalation to help put that in context. M1 had 16 billion transistors, M1 Pro has 33.7 billion, and M1 Max a brain-blowing 57 billion, with all those GPU cores being a not insignificant part of that budget. But Apple has always lent heavily on the GPU for everything from interface acceleration down to the literal core graphics and core animation to do things like the old OpenCL and the new metal APIs, and doing it this way integrated versus discrete in a laptop really turns out to be more than just an implementation detail, especially when you're talking those SOC sandwiches rather than the old fashioned board platters because Apple is keeping all of those CPUs fed with 16 to 32 gigabytes of ddr 5 memory on the M1 Pro and a whopping 32 to 64 gigabytes on the M1 Max, which sure, isn't anything new or novel on a MacBook Pro CPU, but because of the SOC architecture, that RAM isn't just for the CPU. It's a massive memory pool that's also available to all the other compute engines, including the GPU. That's compared to the traditional board architecture where the GPU might enjoy eight gigabytes of dedicated VRAM if you're lucky and 16 at the highest end, highest performance level. But here it gets up to 64 gigabytes, which is just unheard of on a laptop. And to keep that all fed to the GPU, Apple's opened up on the memory bandwidth as well. M1 is doing about 70 gigabytes per second. M1 Pro is doing 200 gigabytes per second. And the M1 Max, a jaw dropping 400 gigabytes per second. And yes, because of the unified architecture, the CPU and other compute engines also get access to all of that memory bandwidth, which is just also unheard of, just unheard of things all the way down. It's the second major way that the M1 Pro and M1 Max feel so damn fast the responsiveness afforded by all of that unified memory system and overall architecture, it makes the Mac feel as utterly instant as an iPad, even more utterly instanter now. Also where a company like Nvidia essentially abstracts away the whole entire computer into an interface for their CUDA cores, Apple's metal frameworks does the opposite. It abstracts away the GPU instead. So anything written against previous Intel or AMD graphics that use the metal framework will just work on the M1 Pro and Max GPUs. And because Apple's GPUs are so damn good here, chances are they'll work even better. They'll just work even better, massively better. And even though M1, M1 Pro and M1 Max vary so much in capability, scalable architecture means they present very, very similarly as targets to developers. And yes, I know Apple had to do a ton of work with all the fabric that brings together and binds all these cores just Ashnag, Frakatula, Krimpatool, all these cores, all this RAM, but anything already written for M1 will just fly on M1 Pro and go full on orbital on M1 Max. And again, because these GPUs were designed for performance through efficiency and have to scale from the iPhone 12 to the iPad Air, to the iPad Pro, to the MacBook Air, to the MacBook Pro, to the iMac, they still only just sip power. So even firing CPU and GPU, basically firing everything, the M1 Max flat out uses slightly less power than the 100 watt baseline on a new Intel Alder Lake CPU, which can also reach over 300 watts when overclocked, as much as a giant helicarrier looking Nvidia Ampere card. And when you put those two things together, even in a desktop where, Intel plus Nvidia would require near cryogenic levels of cooling, or even something like the current Xeon and Navi Mac Pro that can deliver 300 Watts. Apple could easily throw multiple, multiple, multiple M1 Max dies into a smaller, thinner enclosure and still offer just ridiculous levels of performance. And you better believe I already have a video up on just exactly that. linked in the description below the like button. Now I'll get to the media engines in a supremely fast second but in addition to the GPU and the same 16-neural engine cores as the M1, the M1 Pro and M1 Max have a third USB and third Thunderbolt controller, which not only lets them power more ports than the original M1, but more displays, up to two 6K displays with the Pro and three with the Mac and a 4K TV over HDMI. Apple's been adding custom encode and decode blocks to their chipsets for years now, and honestly, Hardware acceleration for video playback isn't at all uncommon. Video transcoding has been a little more hit and miss, but not by much. And over those many years, Apple has added support for H.264, the original 1080p standard, and H.265, AKA HEVC, the 4K standard. Also Google's alternative codecs, including the current VP9. Apple even switched from the original T1 chipset in the 2016 MacBook Pro, which was a repurposed S2 system and package from the Apple Watch to the T2 chipset in subsequent Macs, which has a repurposed A10 Fusion chipset in part because Intel failed to deliver HEVC encoding in a timely fashion. And even Apple's couple of generations old iPhone chip could just do that way faster and way, way more efficiently than leaving it bound to the CPU or offloading it completely to some of the GPUs. So. M1 has those A14 media engines for H.264 and HEVC, among other things. But what M1 Pro and M1 Max added are ProRes video engines, which yes, fair, isn't entirely exactly a first either because when Apple introduced the current Intel Mac Pro back in 2019, they also introduced a reprogrammable ASIC card along with it called Afterburner. And it was a ProRes and ProRes RAW accelerator that could handle up to... 12 streams of 4K or three streams of 8K. Then just a couple of months ago, Apple introduced the A15 Bionic for the iPhone 13, which for the iPhone 13 Pro included an extra, a fifth G14 GPU core and a ProRes media engine. That's what lets the iPhone 13 Pro shoot in ProRes 422 HQ, including a new storage controller that can write those massive six gigabyte per minute files to the SSD without skipping so much as a frame. Now, Apple's also brought those ProRes engines to the M1 Pro and M1 Max, which is just super interesting for a few reasons. First, because it means Apple isn't binding or restricting features to specific IP generations. In other words, A15 generation ProRes engines can show up on A14 generation M1 Pro and M1 Max chipsets. Apple doesn't have to wait for M2. They care a lot less about abstract numerical branding sequences, and a lot more about delivering the capabilities they need to deliver in the most economical, efficient, time effective and performant ways possible. Or as the Silicon team might tell you, their one and only job is to run iOS and macOS and those apps faster than anything else on the planet constrained only by time and the thermal envelope of the device. And the rest really is all just implementation details. Second, because moving those engines off an ASIC board like Afterburner and putting them on the SOC is again, like moving them off the platter and putting them in the sandwich. So they have the same just immediate access to that huge pool of unified memory and bandwidth, which makes them even faster, so much faster. And third, that Apple is putting such a focus on video capture and production this year, because those new engines let you not just capture ProRes on your iPhone 13 Pro, but edit it with jaw dropping speed and efficiency on your MacBook Pro now as well. So forget 12 streams of 4K on Afterburner, M1 Max can handle 30, and just sit down with your three streams of 8K already, because M1 Max can handle seven. That's thanks to M1 Max, not just having one ProRes encode and one ProRes decode blocks, like the M1 Pro, but two of each and two H.264 and HEVC decode blocks as well. So it's just a ginormous media crunching beast. And sure, Apple could have continued doing ProRes on the CPU like they did with previous Intel Macs, even the first M1 Macs, but moving it to dedicated silicon with M1 Pro and M1 Max means they can do it just so much faster with so much less power draw and in a way that just leaves the CPU free for other tasks. And that's really important too, because prior to M1 Pro and M1 Max, when you hit render for ProRes, it could just thrash those CPUs. Meaning anything else you tried to do at the same time, even web browsing was like maple syrup on snow slow. And yes, I'm Canadian, you know what that means. And if you tried to force it, well, that could make the rendering slower. Like it was almost untenable. Now though, you can hit render and only the ProRes engines get thrashed. You can keep working away on the CPU as if nothing else is happening. Almost like you have a second MacBook Pro just ready and waiting for you while the first one's off busily exporting your video. And to see why they're willing to spend their transistor budget on things like these ProRes engines, I have a whole entire video up for you with Apple's VP of Silicon and VP of Mac product marketing where, they explain just exactly why. Link, you guessed it, in the description right below the like button. But it's the third way M1 Pro and M1 Max just devastate on speed. Yes, it's the pure performance of the cores. And yes, it's the utter instant responsiveness of all that unified memory and bandwidth. But it's also all of these off-core features that are essentially giving us multiple parallel Pro workflow engines in one. And because sure, we'll keep seeing advances in architecture and there will be more process shrinks, but eventually the laws of physics are gonna catch up with any big cores in any small enclosures. So Apple is wisely, smartly starting to invest more and more in off big core features. And I think we're only beginning to see the benefits of that. Now, of course, the one downside is that these chips in these machines are expensive, like traditional MacBook Pro expensive. But if you need to save a little bit of money so you can afford a lot more Mac, Cutting your phone bill in half has just never been easier than with today's sponsor, Ting. You can get talk and text for just 10 bucks a month, 12 gigabytes for 35 bucks and unlimited from 45 bucks. Whether you use two or 20 gigabytes a month, you can find the perfect plan for you and for your family with Ting. And Ting works with all the iPhones, all the pixels, all the galaxy flips and folds, pretty much anything with a SIM card. And you can keep your existing number if you want to, Plus you get access to the best nationwide coverage in America, as well as Ting's award-winning customer service. It's never been easier to switch. Just go to renee.ting.com to check out the plans and see how much you can save because it could be a lot. And because you're watching this video, you're also gonna get $25 off. Just click the link below or go to renee.ting.com and get $25 off. Clicking on that link really helps out the channel. And so does hitting up this playlist for more, so much more on A15, M1, and all of Apple Silicon. So hit it up and I'll see you in the next video.